Patients in Minnesota can now begin the process of being certified for medical cannabis. That's what we're talking about on today's edition of Hallberg's Picture of Health. It's a key week for Minnesotans who hope to use medical cannabis. It means a lot of questions could be coming for clinicians like our regular medical analyst, Dr. John Hallberg. He's a physician in family medicine at the University of Minnesota. John, good to see you. Hi, Stephen. Thank you. If a patient comes in today asking about using medical marijuana, what is your guidance to, uh, to them? Well, you know, if they'd asked me yesterday, I would have been completely clueless. But uh, in preparing for today's conversation, I did a lot of homework, and I feel very comfortable with uh, the conversation that I would have. Now, first of all, um, my physician group, I'm part of the University of Minnesota, we have not yet decided how we're going to handle this. So we'd still be a little bit of limbo. But the bottom line is that patient probably knows that they have one of nine conditions that would allow them, theoretically, to be registered to receive medical marijuana. And so the process that I would do, again, theoretically, would be to go to a website that's been created. I'd register myself. So I, as a provider, need to go in there and register myself and then enter the patient's information and indicate that they have a little drop-down menu, that they have one of these nine conditions. And that's about it. So John, let's go over these nine conditions. Yeah. So the first one is cancer. Now, it's really important to know it's not just cancer with a capital C and all-encompassing. If people have skin cancer, for example, you would not qualify. So they kind of drill down, and they typically want people to have a life expectancy of less than one year. They have to have things like um, severe pain associated with it, nausea, vomiting, severe vomiting, or cachexia, which is sort of a severe wasting, um, taking advantage of the fact that the THC in particular, one chemical within cannabis, can stimulate the appetite and allow people to try and keep some weight on so that's uh, right at the top of the list. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. What else? Well, then glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is uh, increased intraocular pressure. So in other words, the eyeball pressure has increased. And there's different kinds. Most of the time, glaucoma is silent. People don't even know they had it. Kirby Puckett was a great example of that. He just woke up one morning and, and was starting to go blind in one of his eyes. But some forms of glaucoma can be very, very painful. And I'm guessing, too, that sometimes the drops that ophthalmologists might prescribe uh, may not be effective. And so uh, it may play a role in helping people with glaucoma. And then maybe not surprisingly, but HIV infection, AIDS is on the list. Um, cachexia wasting can certainly be associated with that. Tourette's syndrome, and people may know a little bit about that, but it's sort of um, people with Tourette's typically have tics and uh, their involuntary vocalizations oftentimes or facial movements or a combination of both. Um, it can help with that amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS mm-hmm. or Lou Gehrig's disease sure. uh, and that certainly makes sense and then seizures and and seizures are you know it's sort of a people can probably imagine what this is but you're having this electrical storm in the brain is probably the best way to think about it and some people may have one seizure in their entire life and that's it other people get them all the time uh, epilepsy is really recurrent seizures mm-hmm. and then there are some children in particular who have just intractable seizures um, there are case reports of people kids with you know 34 40 seizures a day and then going on this medication or some form of it and reducing those to three or four or none uh, for a while. So um, that's on the list. And then severe and persistent muscle spasms. And this is often associated with different conditions like, for example, multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. Um, If anyone's ever had a charley horse and a calf. 
can imagine what that feels like and imagine you have those in different places in your body all the time, the kind of pain that's associated with that. Crohn's disease, um, Crohn's disease is a, um, it affects the intestinal tract, the GI tract, and um, can cause this inflammation. In fact, we call it an inflammatory bowel disease. Some people have that part of their intestine removed if they have this. Um, very, very painful when it's flaring up. And uh, and then terminal illness. If people have less than a year to live, regardless of what the cause is, uh, then in a case like that, uh, this could be used. And remind us why those nine conditions were chosen. Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the, you know we have drugs for all of those things, but every one of these conditions uh, may have pain, for example, associated with it, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, loss of appetite. Uh, in the case of seizures, seizures that just go on and on and on, despite anti-seizure medication. So, um, you know, research has shown that, that they do respond on some level to the chemicals that are within the marijuana plant. Now, you mentioned, John, that your physician group is not yet on board with uh, signing off for a patient to be certified. What's holding them up? You know, I think that most of us in Minnesota practice with big groups. Now, granted, I could just go online and register myself, but I think that we're wanting to make sure that we're part of uh, a plan, that people have thought this through. Um, It's not as though some floodgates can open. I mean, the great thing about this uh, new legislation and this new plan is that I'm not actually prescribing. I'm not picking out a dose. I'm not deciding what kind of uh, marijuana extract uh, patients are going to get. I simply have to certify them. So I think at the end of the day, a lot of groups so we'll say, look, this is pretty straightforward. Um, I think it's fine that, that our physicians, our, our providers, including physician assistants and advanced practice nurses, uh, go ahead and do this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, this just started yesterday on June 1st. And so I think we're all kind of waiting for that official guidance to come down. And the law allows the medical cannabis to be dispensed starting July 1st. Right. Uh, there's only a month here. When, <laughs> why is it taking so long for uh, physician groups to decide? And is there any deadline to when they have to kind of uh, decide whether or not their patients are going to be uh, be allowed to be certified for this? Well, you know, looking through things, it, there'll only be one dispensary open on July 1st in Egan. And there's kind of a gentle rollout. And I think similarly, there's going to be sort of a gentle rollout. People think that some uh, parents, for example, of children with just intractable seizures, they are probably already registered. They're already online, perhaps even working with pediatric neurologists to get them in line for this. But a lot of other people, like all of us, are, I think we're just sort of, it's slowly unfolding. We're learning more about this. Um, if it hadn't been for a supplement that came with my May issue of Minnesota Medicine, the state medical journal, um, I frankly would be a little clueless. And in fact, I'm reminded of an article I read last year in the Boston Globe by a physician in Massachusetts who said, look, we're you know, we have legalized marijuana, uh, medical marijuana, and I have no clue how to dispense this or prescribe mm-hmm. this. And that's kind of a sad state of affairs. I think, though, that the MMA, the Minnesota Medical Association, and the Department of Health has done a really, really good job of uh, getting information out there to us. So basically, the way the law was written in Minnesota uh, was to protect doctors who might be uneasy because marijuana is still... Uh prohibited by the federal government. That's right. It's a Schedule One substance, and in all controlled medications, so not all meds are controlled, but those that are have some addictive potential, at least that's the thought, and they go from sort of a Schedule One at the top and work their way down to about Schedule Five. So Schedule One things would include LSD and heroin, so these are, you know, very addictive, dangerous drugs, and from a federal government perspective, marijuana is still up there, Mm -hmm. and because of that, we can't really do research on it, we can't prescribe it, so yeah, it's rather ingenious that that I'm off the hook. All of my colleagues, all of the fellow clinicians that can prescribe medications are off the hook because we are not actually prescribing it. 
So back to the process. When a patient is certified, uh, what happens next? Well, then it's kind of out of our hands. The you know they will then register themselves. Um, it's interesting. They have to pay about two hundred dollars a year for this. People who are on medical assistance pay fifty, but there's something out of pocket. There's some skin in the game uh, to even just register. And then they kind of go through some online you know things. If if you have Crohn's disease, for example, an intestinal problem, you have to indicate how often you get really bad abdominal cramps. What's happening? And then that becomes part of the process. When you do go to the dispensary, you sit down with a pharmacist, they'll enter your symptoms into a database and then help determine the proper dosing, the, the right amount of these two sort of active ingredients that are in uh, cannabis, and uh, and then, you know, get that dispensed to you. And then every year they'll have to re-register with us. We'll have to make sure that they still have that condition and just make sure that they're plugged in. Now, might some doctors uh, unease about uh, certifying a patient of theirs to receive this uh, really untested medicine, if you will, uh, might it be that they uh, want to have a more hands-on um, relationship with their patients uh, throughout all of their treatments, and, and now they're going to a, a, a marijuana dispensary? <laughs> That's totally right. I mean, I think that it's um, going to be very interesting because we, uh, uh, physicians in particular, are very um, control-oriented, <laughs> and sort of to turn this over um, is a little different. I mean, usually I'm the one that's writing the dose for a prescription that a patient will take, and and yet, I think many of us would agree that there are times when we write a prescription, frankly, we're not that familiar with it. And so now you're going to have uh, pharmacists who have doctoral degrees specializing in this who are really going to understand this. And they're going to understand the, the pharmacology, the pharmacokinetics, the way that these meds work in a way way better than any of the rest of us. So I think we're turning it over to highly, highly trained professionals who are very, very specialized, and they're going to be really good at what they do. Has there been much discussion in the medical community, docs, that you know uh, about medical marijuana and the rollout here in Minnesota. You, you you started out saying you were pretty clueless about it, so apparently not uh, not so much. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, we've talked about it casually. We all have patients with all kinds of medical conditions that don't respond particularly well to well-known uh, prescription medications. And so I think it's going to be an interesting um, conversation unfolding and, and a lot of water cooler uh, talk, I think, about what people think about this. I bet within groups there are going to be physicians who absolutely want nothing to do with this and others who are fine. I think the trouble will be if there's very, very few physicians and other clinicians that register, those that do could get overwhelmed because there's absolutely no legal obligation to do this. You don't have to sign up. You don't even have to certify a patient for one of these conditions knowing full well that they have one of those mm -hmm. conditions. If you are opposed to this, there's nothing you, that you have to do or engage with in the, in the process. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. So in other words, uh, the reluctance of, of a particular physician to certify a patient could lead to that person to go out doctor shopping. Yeah, I mean, the good news is I think that um, that has become a, a real problem with opiate pain medication. And now we have a state registry, so we can actually check on a patient and see how many doctors have prescribed a certain medication. Interestingly, the medical marijuana will not be part of that registry. Um, but I think that um, these folks are not going to have to shop too far to find somebody who's willing to certify them. Again, because we're not going to be responsible for the monthly refill on the medication or anything like that that becomes quite onerous with some of the opiate medications. We talked about the nine conditions that uh, allow people to become uh, certified or try to be certified. Uh, are there some medical conditions that uh, were excluded from the list that you think maybe uh, should be included? Well, there's already talk in 2016 of adding intractable pain. And this is going to be interesting because there are so many people that suffer from chronic pain um, that if that gets added, um, you know, all of the conditions that are on there right now 
you can measure. You know if somebody has a form of cancer. You know based on their eye pressure if they have glaucoma. Um, you know if they have seizures. Those are all measurable things. Um, pain is not. I mean, it's completely subjective, and that's been the great struggle with pain management to begin with. So I think that this could be a little bit of a floodgate opening if chronic pain is added to the list. But that's the the obvious one that's not part of this list, and I think for good reasons. They wanted to sort of start with some very controllable conditions that are that often have specialty care involved. It's not just us primary care people who are involved in these conditions for the most part. So we're going to have specialists to, to rely on or lean on. Uh, so that will be really interesting to see if that's added next year. How often have you had patients uh, asking you about whether they could uh, get some medical cannabis for their conditions? I would say in the last two to three years, as this has been part of the national conversation, more and more people have asked me, not a lot, and virtually everyone who has talked to me about it has had pain. I think that people who have the seizure disorders or the Crohn's disease are probably already having those conversations with specialists. Um, so, I mean, a handful of times, I, I not a lot, but I'm sure it'll start to increase in terms of the number of those conversations that I'm having. I want to drill down on what exactly Uh, a patient will receive when they go to the dispensary. Yeah. So in Minnesota, you cannot get marijuana in a cigarette form, for example. You can't smoke it. You're, you're not, this is not smokable form. So basically, it's they're extracting the active ingredients, and then they're putting them into pills. They're putting them into liquid. Um, it is going to be possible to inhale, not necessarily smoke, but at least one form that at low temperature becomes volatile, and you can kind of breathe it in for those who need to do it that way. But what it boils down to is that they think there are two basic chemicals in cannabis that are active, that actually provide the benefit. And one is something called cannabidiol or CBD, and they think that that's mainly effective with um, seizures and the spasms. And then the other ingredient that many people know of with drug testing is THC, mm-hmm. and that's particularly useful with the pain and cachexia or weight loss. So depending on a person's condition, the pharmacist will sort of enter this data into a database. You know, you have Crohn's disease. How often are you getting abdominal pain? How often are you getting these flares or blood in your stool? That kind of thing. And then um, they'll kind of go through an algorithm and then determine um, what amount of each of those ingredients to get. So someone with uh, seizures, for example, would have more of the CBD and less of the THC. Someone who's got just horrible cancer-related pain would have much more THC but less CBD. And the really interesting thing about this is that the pharmacists are going to determine this. It's completely out of my hands and my fellow clinicians' hands. We don't need to worry about that. And that's that's a you know kind of an odd place to be. I, I kind of like it, to tell you the truth, especially with this. I have no idea how right. to prescribe it. I don't have to worry about it. Part of the whole uh, issue with medical marijuana uh, from a researcher's standpoint, I understand, is that there's a frustration that because it's illegal uh, (laughs) as a federal law, uh, you can't study it. You can't research it. So how are we able to research here in Minnesota what the right dose is? Well, I think there's a lot of information from around the world and other countries and in Europe and and, and other places and other regions. So they're gleaning that. Uh, But yeah, no, this is a huge problem. We don't have the perfect, you know, longitudinal randomized controlled trial that would be the gold standard to determine this. Not only that, you've got a lot of different conditions, you know, and so it's going to, you know, I I think the studies will start eventually, uh, but until federal legislation really changes, I think it's going to be very tricky uh, to really get the, the best data 
you know, is there some data out there? There is. In fact, on the website that, that I can look at as a clinician, there are links to studies. So if I want to make myself, you know, more reassured that indeed this, there's some science behind this, I can go and read those studies if I so choose. Um, but yeah, no, we're we're kind of in our infancy still with this. And in, in a way, this Minnesota law is allowing for a big lab experiment. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think that, yes, uh, Minnesota and the 20-some other states that are doing this were, you know, testing uh, untread waters. Now, the smoking aspect of it, was that, uh, as far as you can recall, something that uh, was, was put aside early in the process in Minnesota so so it would take that sort of uh, stigma out that a, that a doctor was going to be prescribing grass to, a, to the patient? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the backstory, but I think it's really interesting that Minnesota uh, has come up with the most conservative sort of cannabis, medical cannabis law in the country. And I think that I know that there are a lot of my colleagues who would be incredibly unlikely to participate in this if we knew that we're basically prescribing joints Mm -hmm. to patients or that it was so loose that that was kind of the implication. Instead, you know, I mean, it's been pretty clear that there are some medical conditions for which people really benefit. If that's the case, there must be something in cannabis that is, you know, a chemical just like Mm -hmm. opium. I mean, from opium, we derive morphine. We, you know, can we imagine if we didn't have pain medication available and that started as a plant? And so it's not that different. We don't have a, most of us don't have a a huge moral dilemma prescribing pain medication. Some people do. They just will not go down that path. But we all know that in in terminal care and in palliative care, uh, hospice care, when people are uh, in pain or struggling, we want them to be at, at peace as much as they can be. And uh, so I think this is very similar to that in that sense that we've extracted from the plant. You don't need to smoke it. Um, some people will argue that, I'm sure. Uh, but for right now, we've I think they've done the right and sm- scientific thing to make it very um, palatable, if I can call it that, for uh, providers. Is there a potential for abuse of uh, someone getting a hold of uh, uh, medical cannabis and uh, using it for something other than uh, medical reasons? Well, there's nothing to prevent a patient from picking it up, buying it, and then selling it to a friend. I mean, there's just no way to prevent that. I think, though, that the appeal will be rather low because it's not you're not going to get high from this in the same way you might from smoking a joint. But I think that that's, you know, uh, I'm sure there'll be some problems with that. Interestingly, um, all of us who are certifying patients are completely off the hook. We are not liable if somebody has a car accident because they've been using medical marijuana. In fact, there's all kinds of little caveats patients need to understand. They should not be operating heavy machinery or driving if they're on this, just like they, you, know, you wouldn't want someone driving if they're high. Um, they can't use this in public places, just like you can't light up a joint in a public park. So there's all kinds of little caveats that, that are um, still sort of in that societal uh, understanding of what this medication is and what it does. It'll be interesting to see how it all rolls out. It'll be very interesting. I mean, we're just at the cusp of figuring this all out. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen.